You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. And this week, we have a really interesting conversation to be had with the Chief of Town Planning at the town of Mosman Park. Probably one of the city planners I respect the most in my days since I've been dealing with him on a weekly basis. And it is Ross Minette. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. Thank you, Trent. Thanks for having me. I know you're an avid listener. I am. <laughs> Do you enjoy the broad spectrum of things? Do you have a specific focus that you like listening to? Has a bit of feedback before we get into it? The conversations with the minister and with people like Bianca Sandri are really interesting. And yeah. obviously the planning interest and property development side of things really do trigger my attention. Well, that's what you love, right? That's, yeah. that's where your passions lie. Absolutely. But you've just moved into that role at the town of Mosman Park. Do you want to, I guess for everyone listening, give people a bit of a background on what that career path is from school all the way to where you are now, which is sort of top of your game. Sure. So I knew at the age of 15 that I wanted to be a town planner. I looked in that job guide when the when they come around, the career counsellor comes around and said, uh, which subjects you need to take. And geography was, it was one of the subjects that I was really good at. So I took all the subjects and moved forward to get into Curtin University and studied urban planning for four years. It's a pretty uh, popular degree these days. It is. There was a few courses. So there was one at ECU and UWA, but I believe both of those are now on the out. So it'll be back to the one stream of, of, of education yep. at Curtin. And then where was your first gig? So I did a, a short-term contract at the Department of Planning when I was still a student. And then I did another short-term contract at the City of Stirling and cut my teeth in terms of grouped housing and residential. There was a lot of infill in the City of Stirling. It's, it's, it's a massive city, obviously. Yeah, so this was back in 2000, so a good 20, 21 years ago. And from there, I landed my first permanent job at the city of Fremantle. Big difference to the way Stirling operate, obviously. Absolutely. So there's a lot of heritage and a lot of different land uses and the port and that sort of thing, which made it quite an interesting first job. So at the age of 24, I had reached the title of coordinator and I was doing my own property developments on the side. I was helping a lot of family and friends to buy properties in the southeastern suburbs and we were going in and extinguishing restrictive covenants on titles and subdividing lots. So that turned into a lucrative exercise. And at the start of 2005, I started my own business called TPC Urban. So you moved out of government? I did. I moved out of government and I stayed out of government until 2015. So yep. I spent a good 11 or 12 years outside working for different consultancies as well as my own. And also did a couple of stints in Saskatchewan in Canada, doing a bit of research uh, and some work with First Nations communities. And also uh, worked for a couple of different uh, planning firms such as Row Group and Elton Consulting. So you really start to get that more well-rounded both sides of the coin in this space here. That answers a lot of questions for me because I find the best planning officers, they also understand the more commercial side and you don't get that unless you've been working for developers as a consultant. So 2015, you finished up, that would lead you straight back into government, I would have thought. Yes. Yeah, so Why did you make that call? Well, I'd spent a bit of time in Canada and uh, we had to return back to Western Australia and was seeking a bit of job certainty. I had a young baby at the time, so I ended up taking a job at the city of Kalamunda as a senior planner. I hadn't been working in government for a good 11 or 12 years. I thought I really need to reskill and really get into the detail of what the planning system Things was. Things had changed. Things had definitely had changed. Yeah. Planning schemes had become more complex. 
dual coatings, things like that starting to become more prevalent. That's right. So I was one of the creators, I suppose, of the dual density codes uh, and the policies that were operating up in Kalamunda. Mm. And that was a fair bit of work that went into that. But that would have come in after you'd left because that came in in early 2018. So I was there in 2018. I left, I think, in July of 2018. So I did see that project from pretty much start to finish. And then you moved to one of your more infamous roles in the city of Netherlands. I did. So I took the opportunity to be the manager of urban planning at the city of Netherlands. undertook that role until April of this year. And that was a really formative time in the city of Netherlands. A lot has changed for the first time in really my lifetime. That's right. So when I started, it was, I think, a week or so before the council refused the scheme. So I saw that happen and then the subsequent months after where the minister adopted her position and brought in a town planning scheme without the city's consent. That's a pretty drastic action for a minister to take, right? Was it warranted? I think that there had been a lot of stalling by the City of Netherlands over the previous 10 or 15 years in being able to bring forward an appropriate scheme. And you'll notice with other areas around Perth, there's been incremental change and incremental density increases over the years, whereas Netherlands had been pretty much low density for its entirety of its history. No change. No change. And this scheme was very much needed to bring Netherlands into line with the state government's planning objectives with uh, Perth to Peel. Everyone had to pull their weight. And a lot of cities were pulling the weights in different ways, blanket rezoning or upzoning, more strategic walk score amenity based zoning, and then you know zoning that is just, you know, a couple of apartment buildings and there's our numbers. But Netherlands were just refusing anything, right? Yeah, so we put forward or the administration put forward an alternative. So it went back a couple of times between the WA Planning Commission and the City of Netherlands and the staff put forward a scheme which we believed was a middle ground and even that was rejected by the Council of the Day. And that reflects the position that the staff at the city and everyone needs to remember there's the city which is where the planning officers work. They're trying to be as objective as possible and then there's the council which is the elected members right and they're quite subjective. They're obviously very political. That really does demonstrate perfectly the rock and the hard place that a lot of planners might feel like they're sitting you know they want to do the right thing they they look forward to assisting in urban infill in a very strategic way that assists the community but they're stuck being thumbed down by a council that might be totally politically against any of that yeah and look i was a little bit hesitant going into that role knowing that I had somewhat of a, a property development background, but also very much the, the planning theories and that sort of thing very much were in line with what the state needed in terms of infill. For me, being the lead planner or the manager, I had to make sure that I was representing both the interests of planning in general, but also the community that we are there to serve. Mm. It does put you in a very difficult position where you don't have alignment between council and the state. Especially where there's a lot of noise across the state focused on how the city of Netherlands and that at the time as well the city of Subiaco uh, were going about things in, and the way that the minister was you know, retaliating nearly to get to a point where we're now pushing forward with some what, what people would call progress. You moved though, why'd you move? Look, uh, after two and a half or nearly three years of, of working in that environment, the opportunity came up to progress my career so, so there was a promotion it yep. was a promotion you know it's a smaller local government at Mossman Park but the relationships between council and administration are much stronger mm-hmm. and, and it functions quite well 
So for someone in position of leading the planning department, it makes all the difference when an administration and a council can align. And you feel like when you're making decision, delegated decisions on behalf of a council or making decisions that then have a council sitting above that to sign off on, you're actually going to have your work appreciated and fulfilled. Absolutely. So when, you, when you're developing policies, for example, at Netherlands, they would go up and often a time they would be chopped and changed. Come straight back know, down. Straight yeah. back down. So it made it very difficult to be able to you know, administer a planning framework and a system in which represented both the needs of the community, but also aligned with the town planning scheme. Even Mosman Park, it's quite a political place. It's, it's a place that gets quite a lot of coverage as well. It was only a couple of weeks ago we had Adam Zorzi in talking about his endeavours in Mosman Park. What do you think's going on there? Do you feel like since you've come in, you can put your stamp on things, there will be a bit more progress? It's very much a personality-based space there where the person who's heading up that role makes a really big difference to the direction that the city takes in their discretion. To feel like projects like uh, Australian Development Capital's projects have a bit more of a chance to get moving or do you think that something that you know has to work through over quite a bit more time? Look, I think the role of, of a, a planning department and a leader of planning is to facilitate outcomes. Mm. So it's not necessarily the case to take a position of anti-development or pro-development. It's more about looking at each pro, a project on its merits. So we are looking um, at the moment with uh, at a large uh, development on Glide Street in the mm. town centre, but it's right next to a train station. So there's definitely context and we need to make sure that we, if we're getting density, we're getting it in the right location. From my perspective, the door is open in terms of being able to sit down with me and my team and talk through any application, whether or not it's a garden shed or a 12-storey building. Let's chat more broadly now and also talking about how things are at the moment. The draft median density code, which has been bandied around for the last 12 months, being a bit quiet recently, obviously, but do you think that's a step in a positive direction or do you think it's a step too far? How do you think that the market commercially is going to cope with a lot of these really you know, quite restrictive changes that are going to cut out a big swathe of, de- of development type in the market? Look, I think the initiative is well-founded in terms of its intents. To improve the landscape of medium density is definitely something that has merit. There's a big groundswell in relation to protection and, uh, of trees and urban heat island effects and those sorts of things. So I think there's definitely initiatives within the medium density code that can help developers in terms of reaching their goals but there's certainly some typology shift there in terms of how we roll out the carpet I suppose of the cookie cutter approach of triplexing and that sort of Mm. thing. What nearly goes away you know triplexes nearly don't actually work anymore and uh, the problem with that is all it leaves left is uh, that class two development and a lot of that larger built form that only the rich people can be a part of and that the banks are pretty nervous about in the first place. There's that middle ground there yeah. with the triplexes, the quads, that if they become too hard to develop, you find it a lot harder to meet those urban infill targets. And look, I've developed class two apartments myself in syndicates and myself personally and have found that yeah, the market just isn't there. The cost is too expensive to, to build that type of housing. So there's definitely a shift. Uh, my, my belief is in that sort of terrace housing type model, the smaller lots, the zero setbacks, that sort of thing. 
through the planning system, I think this is why there's been a delay to it. The market testing and feasibilities really need to form a strong part of how the planning policies are developed and there'd be a commercial reality associated with town planning schemes and any local planning policies going forward. The great segue there, commercial reality. One of the biggest bugbears I have is town planning schemes, but also even city planners not considering or having a real understanding of commercial realities when it comes to deliberating on things like setbacks, things like understanding where we can and can't put trees. The built form sometimes seems to fall away as a secondary priority to the first priority of just ticking a box on an arbitrary setback from a boundary, for example, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Where's your head at with that? And obviously every city have the, you know, their different planning teams, their different planning schemes, and they deal with them in good ways and bad ways. But you personally, what's your view in terms of that deemed to comply style discretion that a lot of planning officers choose to either have the bravery to have or not have at all? Yeah, look, I think going back to one of your first points there in terms of the commercial realities and that sort of thing, the work that we were doing at Nedlands was quite interesting in the fact that we did built for modelling with an architect firm. And then following that, looking at the different built form controls, we needed to get it market tested. So we engaged a uh, a prominent commercial real estate firm to look at the controls that we were proposing and working out whether or not developers would and could actually develop within those parameters. And make a bit of money on the way. And and make a bit of money on the way, obviously. So the commercial reality and making sure that what we're planning actually can be built, that we're not creating policy that's, for example, going to create a situation where you have to do two, three levels of basement parking and then you can't get um, deep soil areas on top, that sort of thing. So there's definitely a lot more intricate work that needs to be done when creating policies and schemes and precinct structure plans. And I think it's an area in which is becoming more sophisticated within the local governments and the expectations are being raised. Rita Safiotti, when I interviewed her a few months ago, said to me, I think it was even off air, that if she had it her way, she would cancel every local town planning scheme and have one broad-based scheme, one rule book that everyone could follow. And therefore, what it does is take away the risk of not knowing the rule book, not knowing the boundaries, and everyone knows where they stand. Where do you stand on that? There's certainly merit in having standardised approaches to town planning schemes and and policies. So I can see that it's definitely moving in that direction. The planning and development regulations that came through in in February this year have standardised a lot of approaches, things like community engagement, cash in lieu for parking, things like that. So I think there's definitely merit in maintaining that consistency and developing that certainty both for the community but also for the development community so they understand they're going to be doing a development on this side of Walcott Street in Vincent that it's going to be the same approach on the other side in Stirling they should they should have that certainty and they shouldn't be having to second guess their decision making or their feasibilities based on a planning risk Mm. that's what I find to be one of the biggest risks for developers is that there are 30 something cities and there are 30-something rule books and it's really hard especially when some of them are on different ends of the spectrum with regards to the way that they are prepared to approve built form or even just subdivision outcomes and, and that would include also conditions on subdivisions with regards to 
uh, whether you have to bond a driveway, construct a driveway, crush limestone on a driveway, everything's different, right, but for every council. And they change their, their rule book along the way too. And I find that adds, that lack of certainty that developers have adds risk to developments. And for me, I'd love to see a more standardized outcome where it's far less political the way that these town planning schemes and, and new structure plans come in and far more uniformed so that we really have one direction. Because at the moment, what I find is there are, especially for our direction with regards to where we develop, a big part of that is the planning risk. Where do we know it's going to just be too hard to get things through? And where do we know we've had experience where the planning officers have been really helpful and really progressive in the way that they're thinking? Have you found across the cities you've worked with that there are some that you just shake your head out and go, I, I don't know how anyone gets anything through here. And some where you go, well, this, you know, if I could, I'd tell you all to come here because we'd love it. Yeah, look, and I think different local governments have different reputations out there in the development community, but they, they equally have similar reputations amongst the planning community. Really? So yeah. there's certain local governments where you just know that based on a, a leader, there will be a certain outcome or a certain methodology of doing things. And in my experience, when you have a strong leader, you have a strong team who will follow you. Mm. So for my experience, after leaving Nedlands, I've had two of my staff move with me yep. and then two from Kalamunda have also joined me. Yeah. And that's you know been an open and transparent recruitment process <laughs> of that's, course you know um but those are know, positive things for local private developers they go well, look maybe i've got a chance here in Mosman park to get something pragmatic done but on yep. the other side of the spectrum i won't name names but there are specific uh, principles of planning teams in certain cities where you just know if, if they leave this city and go to another city you go well we can't develop there anymore that's a shame isn't it it is and sometimes in a local government environment people move around and it's not known to those who are hiring them that they have a certain reputation mm. but at the end of the day we all have to operate within the same set of rules we all you know have to hold the same level of ethics and we need to all do the right thing mm. so if someone's not doing the right thing then they should be called out on it drp panel are starting to come in quite a lot these days as our joint development assessment panel uh, involvement in a lot of uh, larger projects as an alternative for a developer to choose who their assessing body will be as to who will approve or reject their development and that is an alternative to the council and I think the reason these have come in is because the states recognize that there are a lot of councils out there that are not making pragmatic and objective decisions they're being very subjective and perfect example is the debacle that's going on with Gary, that has gone on with Gary Dempsey's development on, in Cottesloe that had to get all the way up to the top state level and essentially they had to create a new assessment panel just to get this guy's development through I think they're going to get more prevalent over time as people have less and less confidence in the politicised power of cities around Perth do you think it's a shame that we've gotten this far and, and do you agree that it's going to continue to pull the power away from the councils is it a good thing or a bad thing Look, I've done a fair bit of work in the space of JDAP, particularly in the last two years with Netherlands, and also now with Mosman Park, but also with the, you know, the State Design Review Panel and the State Development Assessment Unit. So what I'm seeing is with definitely the, the JDAP process, it's a very quick process. It's only sort of 90 days. You've got to get it right. There's a lot of back and forth, a lot of negotiation with the developer and with the city. So... There is definitely an opportunity similarly for a developer to get their project through the, the system. The difference is that politics, you know, whether or not there's five people against it versus on a panel there's three members that are independent and two that are council members, there's a lot of debate as to whether or not that's fair. My opinion is that 
it seems to work. I don't. I haven't seen anything that's been outrageous, although some people would disagree with me. Yeah, Chellingsworth would be a, you know, something very political that a lot of people would disagree on. Yeah, look, and I was part of that project from start to finish and there was a lot of back and forth on that particular project and I think at the end of the day, the planning system created that development and there was a you know there wasn't anything untoward in terms of the actual decision that was made whether or not it's appropriate for that location it's quite big whether or not it gets off the ground who knows mm. but at the end of the day it was an appropriate decision for the small first time developer just trying to understand the zoning of their property or what the rule book is and they're trying to get through to that local planning team in whatever city it is not specifically Mosman Park They've called up and they've been told that, you know, the city of Stirling, it might take two days for them to get a call back. What would your advice be? I think definitely getting on the phone or coming into the front counter and booking in a meeting with a duty planner or, or whoever's uh, responsible for the customer service and just getting a feel for what it is that that local government needs and, and wants as part of its application process. Some of them are a lot easier than others. A lot of them are electronic lodgements, things like that. A lot of the councils are not resourced well, in fact, to, you know, to get that process uh, well up and running. So definitely communicate with the local planner very early in the piece even as you're doing your due diligence i find that a lot of people will jump in feet first and they haven't undertaken a a due diligence process it's very easy to have a chat with the local council if you want specific advice then always request written planning advice and pay the 73 dollars which is standard across all local governments that will get you something in writing and now as part of the uh, the new planning regulations you've got your deemed to comply checks so that gives you another opportunity to put your plans in front of the staff in the planning department and not have to pay a full lodgement fee for for a da do you think that some of the planning schemes these days are a bit overreaching and they sounded like good ideas at the time, but in fact, they've actually worked against urban infill. And I want to actually use the city of Kalamunda, your baby, as an example, and put you on the spot here. The dual density code in the city of Kalamunda, I personally think is, is way too over-engineered, requiring in a place like Higher Wickham, which doesn't have the socioeconomics, requiring a mix of two-story and single stories where there are nearly no two-stories in the area and no need for it, requiring grey water systems, solar panels, all these things to be done so that you can develop to a triplex level. I've found there's actually stymied urban infill in that area compared to what it could have been if it was you know, something like the city of Joondalup, which was all properties must come off the one driveway. That's the one criteria. Where do you sit with that when looking back on it? Because for me, I look at it and go, geez, I would have done a lot more triplexes if it wasn't so restrictive. When I started at Kalamunda, there was a draft scheme amendment that got knocked back, which had even more onerous provisions in it. So that was actually what you see now is actually a winded back version of what it was originally. There is definitely a desire to achieve most of those items in that particular policy checklist. However, I think in hindsight and now four years or five years down the track, the statistics would probably show that there isn't the uptake that probably could have been. But also the position of the minister and the state has changed against dual coding. So I believe the city of Coburn tried to pull it through Bibber Lake and areas like that. And that was the first one that was pushed back by the minister. Why is that? The approach changed in terms of blanket zoning or blanket upcoding to a more focused approach where the focus on density is around activity corridors and activity centres 
and the blanket triplex type approach is no longer the preferred method. I think the dual coding through Swan and also Kalamunda was of the old school thinking. Yeah, well, you look at the dual coding in Swan, for example, and anyone, if they didn't read the rule book carefully enough, would be forgiven for thinking, oh, geez, all these properties are triplex properties when there's a very clear criteria there that says your property must be 1,300 square meters or more, which pretty much says you have to develop in conjunction with your next door neighbor for you to get the higher zoning. And unfortunately, what you find is in a place like City of Swan, Beachborough, Lockridge, these areas. It's quite rare or less likely that two neighbours next to each other at the same time will have the cash available to do a development like that and join forces. So what you find is most people have just done house behind the houses when really what I'm sure the CS1 was trying to achieve was more larger four or five unit developments around a a central driveway. It's never going to get off the ground because people in that era don't have the money to develop that way. Yeah, and I, I agree with you. I think that those provisions or the dual code provisions of both Swan and Kalamunda are overly onerous and I think that they need to be reviewed. Mm. Well, I know that the, the city of Kalamunda is actually doing a scheme review. So whether or not they remove the dual density codes or the commission asks them to remove them is probably a good question to ask. And I think uh, a more targeted density approach around those local centres on uh, Calamunda Road, for example, in High Wycombe, they're going to be the areas where you want to see probably even more density than what's what's allowable now. So what you're thinking is in the same way that the city of Netherlands just has a straight R60 code close to the highway with no dual density there, and then after that it goes back down to R10, you're thinking that that's going to be the way of the future. Sitting on Calamunda Road, instead of it being R20 slash 60, it might just be an R60 or an R80, but then back from it, again, you probably see it come down to R20 again. Yeah, look, and it, it could be even higher than an R60. It could be an R100 or it could be an RA, you know, RAC zoning if they wanted to have some mixed use. Mm. I think the times of having R40 across a whole suburb are, are not going to happen. I think no. that's going to be wound back. Well, we saw that with Balga. What it did was they were looking to gentrify the area, revitalize the suburb, and all it did was create three times the amount of the same socioeconomic problems they had before with no diversity at all. That's right, yeah. And look, that's that evolved over probably over 20 years or 25 years. And mm. the, the results, are, you know, you can see it, you drive through there. It's not, it's not, it's not amazing. Pretty. It's mm. not somewhere that in 25 years you're really going to want to live. Uh, there's no trees. It just doesn't look great. Yep. So it, I suppose the responsibility of, of planners is to, it, and it is becoming more sophisticated in how you approach it. We need to transition density. You notice in the Netherlands example that it goes from a very high density coding and then it, it drops down as you go through the street block. That process also needs to be quite rigorously applied and a bit of background research that needs to go to that. Public open space contributions. I'm a massive opponent to these. I see them as just a massive money grab tax from cities who've got enough money to do their own things. What I don't think planning officers, when they're suggesting this, City of Canning in their draft, for example, right now have done this specifically for areas like Bentley and St. James. What they do is they're suggesting because the state policy allows for it, it's a bit of a gray area, a bit of a loophole. If you create a public open space strategy, then you can choose, essentially pick the suburbs the way you want to charge a 10% tax really on a developer where if they do a side-by-side development, you can't charge the tax. Where you do a triplex, so you just go from two to three, you can now charge 10% of the land value, which might be $60,000 or $70,000, which is equal to the cost of every other cost item in a subdivision. So it doubles the cost of subdivision. It's also probably a large portion of most people's profit line. 
So what happens is instead of that city actually generating the urban infill numbers they told the state government they would, private developers just underdevelop the sites to avoid having to pay the extra tax. And they also don't get the contribution they said they thought they were going to budget for as well. So no one wins in that situation. The developer doesn't get all the profit they're looking to receive. The state doesn't get the urban infill they're after and the city doesn't get their money. What's your position on public urban space contribution? Because you've just heard mine. Well, it's an interesting one. Uh, There was a local government planners association breakfast meeting last week, which discussed this matter in quite detail. Fantastic. Um, They must have been listening to the podcast. Maybe. (laughs) But uh, Dennis McLeod gave presentation and they used a couple of examples. I think the director of planning from Bassendine also spoke and they were discussing examples from the city of Gosnells from about five years ago and they related to built strata. So the position that was put out to the planning community or the local government planners was that you can charge POS contributions for built stratas now. Yeah. And so that's apartments. It used to be that people would get around having to pay that by doing built strata and then later survey strata in the land once done. But obviously, yeah, that's come in recently. So are you, are you saying that the appetite for planners is that they're looking to continue to broaden this contribution scheme? And if so, what that demonstrates is a clear lack of understanding from planning officers of the commerciality of urban infill. Yeah, look, and that's not at their forefront of their mind when they're thinking about policies. They're representing their communities. You know, it might be a, a council that's small that doesn't have a very big revenue base or a rate base. This is an opportunity, like you said, to tax the developer or to, to get contributions to create either public open space on their lots or to get a contribution to They're never it. after the land, Ross. I think we all know that. They're after the cash. No one wants... 75 square meters at the front of someone's six of an acre block in Joondana. They want the cash. They want the 100 grand. Unfortunately, what it does is it no longer makes that development commercial. And we'll, what we'll continue to see is underdevelopment in areas as private developers just dodge this tax. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting to see that it is something that the planning guys are thinking about, but they're actually thinking about it in the opposite way that on my side, the private development fraternity is thinking about it. Look, and I think some local governments won't take that approach and take that up. And I, the, the SAT cases that they were mentioning were from 2014 or 15. So there's been a fair bit of time in between. But I think it might have been more that the local governments didn't really understand that those SAT cases actually triggered the ability for those POS strategies to come in and particularly to target those multiple dwelling type developments. Because mm. at the moment, think of some of the examples in Netherlands that have gotten away with not paying anything, not even... Uh, development contributions for community benefit. Just because they're not land-based subdivisions. That's right. And the community benefit side of things is also another area where the city of South Perth, for example, are coming up with contributions plans for infill. And I believe that that's proceeding ahead. So the peninsula area, you know, there's there's a list of potential projects and the local government wants developers to partially fund them. Isn't that the point of rates? It's partly the point of rates, but I think the argument that you'll find in the communities that that's that are affected or impacted will will say that you know there's an increase in population, increase in people, traffic, etc. What are they actually doing to improve the community other than just building that building? Mm. Understood. In a perfect world, Ross, if you could mould Perth as a plasticine model ten years from now, where does the planning space? What does it look like generally? If you can 
throw a couple of themes to me. I'm a big advocate for urban infill and trying to maintain sustainable development. So it, it's, it is definitely about making sure that those planning schemes are, are right and they're according with the state government. So I, I definitely am in agreement with some of the centralising of the, of the planning controls and making, making them consistent. But in the same, same regard, there's definitely opportunities even now to nuance those local characteristics and the local desired future character for those areas. And you'll find that the planning framework has evolved to allow the local governments to to start exploring that with their communities and it's something that we're doing now with Mosman Park with that Wellington village area. An ideal would be that the state and local governments are, are better aligned in terms of the overall or the overarching objectives so that we are all on the same page and we all know where we're going. The, the framework is there, it's just a matter of trying to convince some councils that um, some of these arguments are actually real. Uh, a lot of them deny it. Mm. Uh, some of them are, you know, some of the councils even denying climate change so mm. you know it, it's a little bit difficult to to try and align a certain political position of of you know certain council members or or a community with a state government which has a, an opposing view so ideally the system would be one where there's a bit more harmony between local and state government we're still developing triplexes in 10 years I think that they will look a bit different. I think you might end up with more two-story. They might be, um, you know, more trees, more landscape sort of focus, diff- hopefully different materiality, not just your standard, Double you know. Brick. Yeah, and look, I think that's that's sort of a commercial model that's played out here in Western Australia, but I think from a planning point of view or a design point of view, there's probably different and more sophisticated models in which which could be explored. It's just a matter of hopefully the planning frameworks, the planning policies can be a little bit more flexible to allow for that commercial reality, but then still achieve the objectives that are, you know, to actually make some money. Ross Burnett, Chief of Planning for the town of Mosman Park. This has been a fantastic and very concise conversation. And it's so refreshing to have a city planner who's, actually telling it how it is uh, and giving your own personal opinions and i think if we had more planners like that in western australia that weren't weren't hiding behind policy and procedure and we're actually looking to deliver the best outcomes uh, in this state progressively with a tilt of the hat to our natural environment as well then uh, i think we'd be a better place for it so thank you so much for coming in and i think so many people listening to this will find this extremely interesting especially your colleagues in the town planning space thank you trent appreciate your time thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!